Welcome to Coping with COVID-19, an editorially independent program from the editors of Modern Aesthetics and Practical Dermatology magazines. In this episode, Infectious Diseases Clinical Pharmacy Specialist Adam Jackson joins the panel of aesthetic physicians to discuss the Omicron variant and its impact on the pandemic. Dr. Michael Gold and the panel, including Drs. Joel Cohen, Mark Nestor, Joel Schlesinger, and Amy Taub, share how COVID is currently impacting their practices. I think it's pretty clear that Omicron is more contagious than previous variants. Um, from an evolutionary perspective, that's not surprising. Um, it makes sense that such a thing would occur. Um, the, the best data we have now, and, and I think this is a decent ballpark. Um, I don't I remember everything in science is a confidence interval, so always keep that in mind. Um, so if the original uh, variants had, if the original strain had a, a R0, which is a highly vague number to some degree, of around two to two and a half, which means one person would infect two to two and a half others. Um, flu usually is a little above one, maybe one and a half, something like that. It depends on the setting, of course. Delta was a little bit higher than that. This one is around, I've seen anywhere from four to six, so call it five-ish. Now, you know, the, the key is, the, one of the things I keep on telling people is to understand when you're speaking, are you speaking of relative or absolutes? When I say five versus two, you think, oh no, that sounds bad. Keep in mind, we have a lot of things that are, they're not common of course, but they're a lot worse. Varicella measles start bumping up to 15, 16, 18. So is five good? No, it's not hellacious though. The pro on an individual level, the problem is the rule of large numbers um, that uh, you have a large population. And so the higher contagious, the more contagious the virus is, the more it will spread, the higher your case counts. Um, so that, that, that's, that's, that's that side of it. Now, what does that mean for people who are previously vaccinated, et cetera? Um, this is not, um, let me give you an analogy, which is, you know that you would never use amoxicillin for pseudomonas infection, like no one would, like you just know it's not gonna work. And you think, okay, well, something like cefepime, I don't know, or piptazo or whatever, Cipro. You think, well, yeah, that has activity to start off with in a test tube when it, but over time, that activity may decline. Think of a true escape variant as like amoxicillin and pseudomonas. Like it doesn't matter like what the vaccine is, what dose you give or anything, you're out of luck. We have not seen to this point a true escape variant. And I am still skeptical that we will. And the reason why is because without changing entirely what it binds to, the, the, the ACE2 receptor, I still maintain that I think it is a very narrow genetic needle to thread to change so much that you avoid the immune system entirely, but still able to bind to that ACE2 receptor. Um, I, I, could I be proven wrong? Of course, that, that's my hunch, that's my hope. Um, the fact that we've gone through two years and we haven't seen one yet, a true escape variant is good. But that doesn't mean um, but dose, these are all dose related issues, both dose, kind of dose of vaccine, but not so much that dose of immunity, meaning 
what does your the vaccine elicit? And you know, you have humoral and cellular immune responses. Um, and basically, uh, think of prevention of actual infection. Now, I'm not talking hospitalization or death, just prevention of infection is probably needs a sufficiently high antibody level, and it needs a sufficiently high antibody level at the site of replication. Um, and so, whereas prevention of severe disease, obviously it helps if, if you never get infected in the first place, you don't get severe disease. But the next line of defense are those, are the cell, are the cellular responses. So it's a tale of two cities here. First, the good news. And by the way, I don't have like terrible news, quite frankly. Um, um, the really good news is that all the evidence we have thus far is that two doses of an mRNA vaccine still maintains high levels of protection. And by high levels, I mean, could be, you know, 80 to 90%, somewhere in that range, maybe lower, if, you know, depending upon who you are, against, um, so that's a relative risk reduction. Whatever your risk is, lower it by 80%, let's say, against hospitalization or death. That is outstanding and remarkable and awesome. And the reason why it does that is because all those T cell responses you want are still protective with, with even the Omicron variant. Great, good news. Um, what about prevention of actual infection? The reality is that you don't live on this earth and never get touched by a virus this contagious. We've all been touched by flu, we've all been touched by rhino, we've all been touched by NRO. It's going to happen and it's never going to be eradicated. Just not gonna happen. So it's good to set those expectations. The key is we wanna have so much immunity broadly defined, whether it's antibody cells, et cetera, that at the very least, we don't worry about hospitalization. And ideally that whenever we get it, it's not that bad. Booster doses are the key. It's abundantly clear that they, um, they do exactly what you want a booster dose to do. And they, they offer, is it the same level of protection, 90%, 95% what we saw originally? I'll say probably not, but the reality is we don't know because we don't, all that was from RCTs. We're not going to do an RCT, obviously, here. Um, we get a fourth one. Adam, Adam, um, when you're talking about, Adam, when you're talking about efficacy, and you know, I've, I've talked to some folks in the vaccine world, the microbiome world, and have a tremendous amount of respect for the work that you do and the advice that you've given me from 20 years of friendship. Um, so I just, you know, from looking specifically at the boosters right now, there's some concern that the testing that you're discussing is really done in vitro, and we really don't have that much in vivo analysis of this, so we're postulating. And then there's been some suggestion from an ID doc that I work with that perhaps the booster dosing is really just working for about 10 weeks. And you know, where does this all end for us? So I think, I think there's one other issue, and, and Adam, thank you. And, and I'll, I'll put on my immunology hat too. And, and what you said is interesting, it, it's about infection. We're going to get, the way vaccines work, the way immunity works is you get infected. You don't get sick, but you get infected. And I think that's a key issue here because we keep seeing repeat people, and I've seen it in patients and staff who've had COVID or vaccinated, all of a sudden come up with a positive PCR, okay, even though they're not sick. And the reason is they're getting reinfected. They're not sick. The question we don't have is how much virus for this new variant needs to be there if you're not infected, 
infected really to be sick, to be infectious. And that's what we don't know. So what I'm saying is that, you know, you're not going to get sick, but you could, even though you're fully immune, okay, have the virus um, um, replicate enough to have you give it to someone else. And this is, I think, one of the key issues. And this is why we're seeing so many positive asymptomatic people, okay, and so many positive people who are vaccinated and even have boosters and even have had COVID because people are constantly being reinfected. And they are, I, I believe, they're at least partially, at least to some degree, infectious. Now, the other thing that's very interesting about this that I've seen, which is different than everything I've seen before, is when somebody becomes positive on a test versus when they get sick. For the first time, what I'm seeing is that people are getting symptoms then and they're negative, And then probably two or three days into it, they become positive. And that's something we've never seen before. And you know, the question I have, which I'm not sure of is, obviously we're dealing with other viruses out there. We're dealing with cold viruses, we're dealing with rhinoviruses, et cetera. Is it possible that one is, is going on another, either a flu virus, et cetera? You're feeling sick from that, but at the same time you're infected even though you're immune with the COVID. And that's very possible because we're not linking the sickness with the other viruses because we don't test for them. And this is kind of the conundrum that we're having that I'm looking at when I'm talking to people and, and Joel, to your point, that we have all of, we have a lot of missing data that we don't have, number one. And number two, we're doing something we've never done before, which is massive testing. And the yeah. massive testing is giving us more confusion than anything else because what's happening is you're equating the positive test with I'm sick, I've got COVID, okay? And no matter when you do it, you may, you may not be sick, you may not have, you may have vestiges of COVID, especially with the PCR, okay? But you may not be contagious. So, so based on that, Joel, so what we're doing is I look at the rapid test as a harbinger of infectiousness. I think it's a much closer harbinger of infectiousness. If it's positive, you're infectious. If it's negative, even if you still have some virus in there, the odds are probably 95% yeah. plus that you're not infectious. So, so this goes back to the, the idea of doing a rapid test after five days, not a PCR. Notice the CDC did not say PCR, okay? And, and from there, use that as the the harbinger of whether you're infectious to others. So, so just to ask a question of Adam specifically, so how long can a rapid test be positive? So, you know, for, for our staff, if somebody's not feeling well, we're suggesting that they not come to work and they get a test. And in some cases they're doing a rapid test at home and we don't know, you know, what relative time frame this represents. So it's best for them to go get a PCR test, right? But like the Surgeon General in Florida indicated yesterday, you know, in terms of things, if people are not symptomatic, then they probably shouldn't be going out to get PCR tests and clogging up the system so that people who are sick can't get a PCR test and therefore can't be monitored, tracked, and treated because they just don't have access to that type of test. 
Right. And the time frame. How about the time frame before Adam goes All into right. the so answer? The time frame to get the PCR results now are up to a week. It depends upon where you are. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But I don't think we can, nor do I think we will ever be able to say with certainty the antigen detection, the rapid antigen detection test is um, in, is indicative at this percent level for infectiousness for this length of time. Right. I, that, that, that's, that, that's not going to happen. Right. I agree wholeheartedly with what Mark is saying that if you're, if you're trying to determine infectiousness, what you care about is, is live contagious virus and rapid antigen detection tests are far better at that than a PCR. However, it's still not 100%. And, right. and, and what the, the other thing I think that's really important, because I think we, it's hard to look beyond where we are right now in this peak wave. Um, and, but, but, but looking beyond this, we're going to have to find a way to shift how we view COVID into how we view other respiratory viruses. We'll have to modulate that some depending upon the patient and, and whatnot, because it is different. But we, the general rule of thumb, which has worked by and large, is that we know a person can still, I'll just say feel sick because that, that, that's a broad definition and not be contagious. The notion of a certain period of time after symptoms, as long as you are fever free for at least a day without that 24 hours, that there, um, I'm not gonna tell you there's an RCT behind it because there isn't, but this is what all is so much of infection control has been built on for decades and decades and decades. So I think it is quite reasonable. Um, so, so um, I, 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 I know that doesn't really answer your question. Here's, here's the thing though. This is where the practice, you have to measure weigh the practical and the science and how certain you wish to be. The practice, on one hand, you have this, holy crap, everybody's out of work. Like we gotta, you know, whether it's a doctor's office, a school, a water treatment plant, whatever it is, things have to get done. And so you weigh this, well, I want people at work because I want to, things have to get done with, well, I don't want to spread disease unnecessarily. Finding that is an imperfect balance. There is no, and, and, and the, if, if you say, I just want to prevent all disease, well, then we're just going to test people all the damn time and, and wait for everything to be negative. But that's not going to work because then as, as Mark was saying, we're going to find a whole bunch of people who are asymptomatic who probably, so Mark, in answer to your question, if, if um, I'm going to try, if this right here, if this high level is contagiousness with symptoms, we know that people right. who are symptomatic, febrile, you're the top of the hill. And the right. more severe disease you have, the higher viral load, probably the more right. contagious. Then at the bottom, you have no infection at all, completely negative. Okay. Right. The asymptomatic and frankly, even the mildly symptomatic have to be, they're not as high as the highest. They're not as low as zero. We can't find the exact perfect balance between those two extremes. 
And it's, and it's adamant, it's changing. That's the issue. The issue yes. is Omicron is different than the others because you probably need less virus because it's yes. stickier, okay? Therefore, yes. this what you're saying is shifting, okay, yes. from that perspective. So I agree, it is more contagious. And so therefore, all those lines just got shifted up. Right. So I, I just want to point out, I want to point out one thing was that, and somebody had, written this, I, I didn't originate it, but you know, Rachel Walensky, who's obviously the head of the CDC now, who is now putting on her public health hat and trying to make this balance of what you just said, which is gonna be imperfect and everybody's gonna be mad about it, no matter what balance we choose, you know, wrote a paper apparently like, I don't know, a few years back, basically arguing exactly what you and Mark just said that, that the rapid antigen test is a stand-in for infectiousness and that five days is a pretty decent time. And to, to test for that, um, to see if, and, and you know, could be a way to get people to go back to work. I think the problem here is, cause I, you know, I had a meeting with my staff and of course they're going crazy because they have all the people calling all day and saying, well, what should I do this? And should I do that? And they don't really understand. And so it was just kind of like, hold on for a minute. There's no gonna be no absolute answer here. We are just gonna be doing, we're gonna take what we know and make the best choices that we possibly can to keep the staff and the patients safe. But no, we are, cannot make it perfect. 